when I became a parent, I assumed that there were certain parenting formulas that when we use them, they just would work, you know, certain things you say or do, and, and your children would fall in line. Example, one of my favorite go-tos, boys, I'm counting to three. Are you familiar with this one? Of course you are. This is a classic. This is, this is, this is everybody's go-to, right? I'm counting to three. One, two, and you have to say two just like that to, to let them know you're serious. And that's when we get into fractions. Two and a half. Now with some kids, with some kids, they respond to the count to three method. It works. But with others, they'll just look at you. Like, how many fractions am I going to get out of him before he actually does something here? I've always wondered, where did the count to three thing come from? Who came up with that? Why is that so natural for me as a parent to turn to that? You know, I figured it out, or at least I think this is what it is. It's a grace period. It's as a parent, I'm saying, listen, I'm not going to discipline you immediately. I'm going to give you grace. I'm going to give you three seconds here to think about it and to do the right thing. And then comes discipline. Okay, so it's a it's a grace period, right? When I read Jonah chapter three in a weird way, that's kind of what we see God doing here. God finally gets his message of judgment to Nineveh through Jonah. Jonah finally comes around and goes to the city and proclaims the judgment of God, right? But it's a judgment forestalled. There's a grace period here. God would have been well within his rights considering the wickedness of these people. He could have just wiped them off the map. God could have brought swift punishment without sending a prophet instead. No, no, no. He could have just done it. And God would have been righteous in that case to do it. But no, he sends Jonah with a message, and the message is 40 days. I'm counting to 40 here. 40 days and you'll be overthrown. God graciously gives these people time to repent. We see through the first couple of chapters of Jonah that God has an intention in getting Jonah to Nineveh, right? But up to this point, the focus of the narrative has mostly been on one man. It's been on Jonah. We've we've watched his travels here up to this place. Now the narrative focus is going to shift a little bit. We see Jonah proclaiming a message, but then the majority of this chapter is not really about him. It's about somebody else. It's about this city. And so let me, if if you've not been with us the last two weeks, we've been walking through this book. I'll give you a real quick recap as to what's been happening here. A lot of us know this story. It's a famous story, the story of Jonah, the prophet of God, that God came to him with a word. He said, go to the city of Nineveh, a pagan city, the capital of Assyria. Go there and proclaim to them their wickedness. Their wickedness has come up before me, God says, but Jonah refuses the mission. Instead, he gets up and goes the opposite direction, away from the presence of the Lord, because Jonah knows what God desires to do. God wants to show mercy to these people, Jonah thinks they ought to suffer and die, and he wants no part of this mercy mission. So he runs. Eventually, Jonah finds himself on a boat and a storm. He is thrown overboard so that the storm will cease because God has brought the storm upon them. And then he is swallowed up by a giant fish. And in the belly of the fish, Jonah at long last repents. He recognizes, he owns his sin, and he turns to God in repentance and says, God, whatever you tell me to do now, I will do it. And that's where we pick up the the story in Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. We see a reversal in Jonah, but now we'll also see a reversal in the people that he goes and sends this message to. Look with me at verse 1 again. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, 
saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. Tell them whatever I say, God says. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. So the first reversal we see in the story of Jonah is with Jonah himself. The first time God said, Arise, go to Nineveh, he didn't, he refused. But God is dead set on making Jonah the mouthpiece for his mission here. God decides not to go and find another prophet who's more willing to go. He says, no, 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 I'm going to send this message through you. Jonah runs the first time, but the second time he obeys. Now, all it took was three days in the belly of a fish. All right. Um, So Jonah finally obeys. Now, y'all, there's a short point to be made here, but it's an important one. God is very gracious to us, and we should be so glad. God does not treat us as our sins deserve. And oftentimes, God will give us a second chance in life, a second chance, another go-around in, in concerning things that we've failed in or things that we've run from. In the case of Jonah, we see it. He gets a second chance that he didn't deserve. But it's an abuse of grace if we ever fall into this temptation to say to ourselves, you know, it doesn't really matter what I do because God will forgive me anyway. God's gracious, right? So I don't really need to obey him today. He'll give me a second chance tomorrow. Do you see why I would call that an abuse of grace? What it shows in that case, if that's a temptation for me to feel that way, it shows that I don't really understand grace and I don't really understand and value the heart of God, that we're not meant as his people to, take, to try to take advantage of his mercy and his patience. Y'all, the fact that God is gracious toward us in our sins, that should fuel obedience rather than extinguish it. If God is gracious to me and I try to take advantage of him and think, well, man, I don't have to, I don't have to really live in a devoted and diligent way because he'll just forgive me anyway. Then that, that we're, we're, we're taking something that God has, has called wonderful and we're treating it as common. And I don't really understand what grace is or what grace does. So y'all listen, if God calls you to obey him, and he does, we open his word, it's in there all over the place. God says, obey me, then we need to set our minds and our hearts to do it. We don't need to use Jonah's experience as our strategy to say, well, see, he got a second chance. That means I can do whatever I want today and tomorrow I'll get serious. No, see, that's, that's called an abuse of grace. And God, God does not, um, God won't play that game with us. If we try to obey him and we stumble and fall short, of course he's gracious to us. But he's not going to keep knocking on a door of somebody who takes what he's done for me for granted. Okay? And so we don't need to make optional what God makes mandatory. If God calls you to obey him, then let's be the kind of people, uh, sinful and frail as we may be, let's be the kind of people who obey him the first time and, and trust his grace when we fall. But let's not be a passive, a procrastinating people. Okay? Um, Jonah gets a second chance. God's gracious that way. But let's not, that's not a strategy for us. All right? Let's obey him today, as he calls us. But Jonah reverses course. We see it, that the, the fish vomits him out on the land, the end of chapter 2, and he resolves now to go. Okay, whatever God tells me to do, I'm going to go and I'm going to say it. Okay? Now, Nineveh is a great city. It's, it's, uh, what, what Jonah tells us here is that it's a three days walk. Whether that means three days it took to walk through it, or three days around it, that's not really clear. But the point is this, it's the capital of Assyria, and in, in, in ancient context, it is a massive city 
We, would, we wouldn't think of it as Kosciuszko here, okay? Nineveh is a considerable place. A, uh, if you're from Kosciuszko, that was not meant as an insult. Um, this is not Conroe, Texas, where I grew up, okay? This is an intimidating place. This is a great big city. But look at verse 4. Jonah's resolved to obey. So Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Period. Now, that's not a friendly message. This is not the stuff we put on Christian t-shirts and coffee mugs. I can, I'm willing to guess you don't have Jonah chapter 3, verse 4, hanging somewhere in your house, you know, in a nice frame. This is not the encouraging Christian message that we all like to hear, right? It's simply a warning of impending doom. And that's it. Now, it's unclear if this was the absolute extent of the message or if there was more to it. You know, did Jonah elaborate here? Did people ask him questions and maybe he explained to them some, some finer details? We don't know. My assumption is, I think he did, I think that there was more to the message than just that single sentence, because if you think about it, Jonah did not mention God's name in that sentence. He doesn't, he doesn't tell them the reason for judgment, the reason that they're in trouble. He doesn't say anything about their sin. He also doesn't tell them how they're supposed to respond. And so uh, it's possible, and to me it's likely, that there was more to it than just that single sentence. But the message, the central message, comes across loud and clear. You've got 40 days and then you're toast. 40 days and then time's up, y'all. Okay. Um, now, to clarify here, if you, if, you, uh, if you weren't with us two weeks ago when we looked at Jonah chapter 1, I talked a little bit about Nineveh. We don't need to assume that Nineveh is just... It's just a nice place full of nice people who are a little misinformed. You know, what, what's the big deal? Uh, no, Nineveh was a bad place full of wicked people. God says the reason he sends Jonah there in the first place is that their wickedness has come up before him, meaning it has absolutely boiled over out of control, that this was a savage place full of savage people. They had no concern for God, not the God of the Bible. They had no concern for God's people. They did great violence against the people of Israel. And so when God issues to them a threat of judgment, that should come as no surprise to us. God's not being unnecessarily cruel right here. He's simply being just towards sinners. That's not the surprise that God would be angry about their sin. The surprise is in how they respond. Look at how they respond. Verse 5, then the people of Nineveh believed in God and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. How did they respond? They did not mock the messenger of God in the message. They didn't kill Jonah or throw him in jail. They responded they turned their hearts to God in fear and reverence. And it says from the greatest down to the least, from the king of Assyria all the way down to the lowest slave, everybody fasted and put on sackcloth. The king even sat on ashes. Um, fasting in sackcloth and ashes, this was an Old Testament, an, an ancient form of showing the most dramatic uh, response of grief and sorrow and brokenness. It's, it, it was to put on sackcloth and to fast. It was a tangible way 
of showing just how broken and poor in spirit you were. It's something they would often do at funerals, recognizing the brevity of life, that from dust we came and to dust we shall return. They would put on sackcloth and they would fast and they would weep. And it's something in this case that these people do in response to the revelation of their sin. Y'all, sackcloth was about the most uncomfortable form of clothing known to man at this point. It was very rigid. It was very scratchy. It was very uncomfortable. And of course, that was the whole point. Generally, it was what the poorest of people wore because they had no other options. But in this case, everybody, everybody took off their finer garments. The king takes off his robe and instead they put on sackcloth. This is, for the Ninevites, this is a statement of deep sorrow and grief, of humility, of brokenness. They are torn apart over the message that they've now received, and they tangibly express it. Um, uh, We saw this last week, how Jonah, in the belly of the fish, Jonah comes to terms with his sin, and he repents. It's a really, it's a wonderful thing to see. Jonah, who was so obstinate, who was so arrogant, who thought he knew better than God and thought he could run from God, in Jonah chapter 2, God forces him to change direction, to come to terms with reality, to see himself in the mirror, in a sense. But we would expect Jonah to repent because he's a prophet. He's a godly man. I mean, he, he knows and worships God. Of course he should repent in the face of his sin. Y'all, this right here, though, in Jonah 3, this should shock everybody. Anybody, especially in ancient times, who would have read Jonah would have been absolutely thrown when they saw the response of the Ninevites. This makes no sense. These are godless people. These are people who have... they, They are aware of the fact that there's a God of Israel, but they mock him to his face. They could care less about the God of Israel. And so when we see them repent, it's really meant to bust our categories of people. If you and I ever assume that certain people are just too far gone, there's no way, then the Ninevites ought to bring us to correction in that, that God can bring anybody to this place of repentance. It's a dramatic change. And y'all, we notice this, I hope. These people don't just feel a little guilty about themselves, and they're just going to casually throw a prayer up and hope things get covered. No, it is a radical response. It has broken this down to the core. They stop everything, and they institute wholesale change citywide. This is what's called a revival, a true one. We see in verse 7, what does the king say? The king doesn't just fast himself. He issues a proclamation, a decree. And it said, in Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, verse 7, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water, but both man and beast must be covered in sackcloth. And let men call on God earnestly that each man may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. Uh, This is an interesting part of the story. Not only did the people grieve their sin and fast, they made the animals fast. You think the animals are looking around like, where'd the food go? What did I do? didn't do anything. Everybody, man and beast, right? And and there's there's a message being sent here loud and clear that every living thing is at stake, that the Ninevites did not just take personal responsibility for their sin, but the entire landscape, including the livestock, was going to be touched by this sin, and therefore it needed to be touched 
by repentance, too. Life is not going to go on as normal, the king says. You stop what you're doing. You stop your eating and drinking. You stop your buying and selling. Postpone your daughter's wedding. I'm sorry. Whatever it is, we're going to stop and we're going to grieve. We're going to cancel everything and repent. Even the animals were made to wear sackcloth. Now, how do we explain this? And here's where I really want to get to the heart of this message. How do we explain such a dramatic 180-degree transformation in the people of Nineveh? I mean, this is, this is startling right here. We may read it and, and just, you know, it's a Bible story. You know, stuff like this happens. There has to be an explanation for this. Is it that, that Jonah was just such a great preacher? Billy Graham times 10. Jonah was much, so, so persuasive that the people just fell all over themselves. Uh, I, I don't think so. I tend to think not so much. His message surely wasn't that impressive. It was just one sentence or maybe a little bit more. Some, some scholars have suggested that, that the news of Jonah being swallowed by the fish had preceded him to Nineveh. People knew about this prophet of God who had been swallowed up into, this, into the belly of the fish. So when he shows up and starts walking through the city, it's like seeing a ghost. That's what motivated them to listen and to respond. Maybe. Uh, whatever other factors may have been at work, whatever kind of naturalistic explanations may be there, um, here's my belief, and I feel very strongly in saying this. The repentance of the Ninevites was a miracle of God. It was a miraculous work of God. Point blank. That's the end of the story for me. The credit doesn't really go to Jonah and his preaching. He was faithful to go and to proclaim the message. Praise God. But Jonah could not have done this through his persuas- persuasion. And the, the, the credit doesn't go to the people of Nineveh and their sensitive hearts. They didn't have sensitive hearts. They weren't sitting around waiting, saying, I wish somebody would come and convict us of our sin. They were living their life totally as normal, and it got disrupted. At the snap of a finger, they turn. They they can't get the credit, or at least all the credit for this. Y'all, this kind of sweeping revival can only come if God produces it, as it is with any revival. Only if God produces it. See, repentance, when I use that word, repentance means that we recognize our sin, that we own it. We talked about this a lot last week. We take responsibility for our sin and we take it seriously. We grieve that sin and then we turn from that sin and we turn instead to God. That's what the essence of repentance is. You see your sin, you own it, you grieve it, and you turn away from it to God. Those are all things that you and I consciously do. And yet we only do them ultimately by the power of God's Spirit who energizes repentance. And this is so important for us to recognize because this is how people actually change. If you've ever wondered, how how am I going to actually change my behavior? Well, that starts by changing what we love. That that starts by changing what our heart and our mind fixates on, where our affections go, right? Well, how does that change? Well, it changes in the course of what we call repentance. The, The Ninevites experience some clear dramatic change, right? Because they recognize their sin, finally, for what it really is. And they recognize this, that God will not allow us to stay where we are. God will not allow us to remain in our sins. God's desire for us, for you and me, is that we become holy instead. Not continually wallowing in the same sins forever, but becoming increasingly more and more like God in his character. Holy. Um, If we only fixate on the behavioral aspect of sin... 
I know it was wrong and I've got to fix it. Then we actually miss the whole point of repentance. The point of repentance is not just stop it. The point is, where do we turn instead? The point is God. And that's the point that I think comes across in Jonah 3. But I want to show you from the New Testament how I think this is true. Okay? Real quickly, you don't, need, don't, don't turn there, but in John chapter 16, there's a scripture where Jesus is speaking with his disciples about the Holy Spirit, that when Jesus is going to be crucified, buried, and then he's going to raise from the dead, and then he's going to, going to come the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will be sent into the world. And listen to what Jesus says. This is John 16, 8. He says to us, when the Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. When the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Um, Y'all, every single person has an intuitive sense of what's right and what's wrong. Uh, Read Romans 2. Paul tells us about that. Everybody has the law of God written on their hearts. Everybody, whether they're a religious person or not, we all know deep down the difference between right and wrong. And therefore, when we commit wrong deeds or say wrong things or think wrong thoughts, we, we naturally feel guilty when we do, right? Everybody knows what that's like. But that's not what Jesus is saying in John 16. He's not saying the Holy Spirit is going to come and show people the difference between right and wrong. He's saying something deeper than that. Jesus says God's Spirit, God's Spirit will convict us, will not just reveal to us, but will paint us into the corner and convict us of sin and righteousness and judgment. That means God is going to show us what sin really is at its deepest level. Not just, I messed up, and that was wrong, and I feel bad, but sin as God defines it. We've got to be convicted of that. See, if, if, a, if a person feels guilty about what we've done, okay, you, you know this is true, generally we'll do one of two things. I feel guilty, I did something wrong. Either I'll try to suppress that guilt, I'll try to ignore it, I'll try to justify it, pretend it away, and move on. Or I'll try to atone for what I did, meaning I'll try to do something good to make up for it. I'll try to cover for it. We'll either try to ignore it and suppress it, or we'll try to atone for it. But when the Holy Spirit of God convicts us of sin, he's showing us at the deepest level of our hearts what sin really is. It's not just a mistake or something I did wrong. It is rebellion against God, and there's nothing I can do to fix it. I cannot ignore it and suppress it. I cannot atone for it and make up for it. God shows me what sin really is. That's called conviction, okay? Only God can do that. That explains why the Ninevites respond the way they do. How do we make sense of just them throwing sackcloth on themselves, weeping, sitting on ashes, fasting? They were convicted of sin. A work of God occurred in their heart. They were convicted. They knew they were cooked. They had no way of justifying or somehow making up for it. They just fell upon God, right? Conviction. Second verse I want to show you comes from 2 Timothy chapter 2. And this is a little longer, so we're going to put it up on the screen. This is the Apostle Paul instructing Timothy. Here's how I want you to respond to people who are opposed to our faith. Listen to what he says. 2 Timothy 2.24. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, not ready to fight. But instead, he says, be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, 
leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Y'all, there's so much in that verse. We'll preach that verse uh, one day. It's so good. You see what Paul's saying? Those who are opposed to the truth of Jesus are ensnared by the devil, and therefore they don't know the truth, and therefore they must repent. Well, how are they going to repent? Paul says it, and I'm sure you saw it. Only if God grants them repentance can they know the truth and be set free. What Paul's saying right there is so important that repentance itself is a gift from God. Repentance is something that God has to initiate and animate and energize. Unless God intervenes in your life, you will not turn your heart to him and repent of your sin. So what we just saw from John and from 2 Timothy says, I think hopefully a, a more comprehensive view here of repentance. God in his spirit has to convict us as to what our sin really is. And then God in his grace has to bring us to change. He has to bring us to repentance. Now, why did I just tell you all that? Because we might be tempted to think that the Ninevites are just scared of getting smoked. They're not really sorry about what they've done. They just don't want to be destroyed. I mean, isn't that natural, right? That's self-preservation. You know, didn't didn't you ever have a, a teacher that left the room and everybody starts going wild? And then somebody's keeping watch and sees her coming back in everybody gets back in their desk like nothing ever happened. That's just, you know, that's something the Ninevites are doing. You know, maybe if we change our behavior, maybe if we clean things up a little bit, next time God peeks through the clouds, he'll see a different story, and he won't be mad at us anymore. Y'all, that is not what's happening here in Jonah chapter 3. This is not self-preservation. We're just scared of being destroyed. Look back at verse 8 with me here. Jonah 3, 8. This is part of the king's edict, the part of the king's decree. He's speaking. He says, But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth, and let men call on God earnestly, that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Do you notice the order of things right there? The king does not say, Everybody straighten up and act right so we don't get in trouble. No, the king says, Let everyone call on God sincerely, earnestly, so that each man may turn from his wickedness. The order there is so important. He doesn't say, stop being bad, and maybe God will be happy. He says, no, call to to God, call on God with all your heart, so that you may change. Y'all, there's a recognition here that their sin is the reason for judgment, but God is the source of their redemption. This is not a problem that they can solve in their own will. Only God can bring redemption. Only God can bring salvation here. They can't unsin, and that's important for us to remember too. Every time we sin, it's, it's done. You can't undo it. Right? That's, that's, a, that's a scary reality when we talk about sin. And therefore, we can't save ourselves. We can't compensate. We can't atone for our own sins. That's what the people of Nineveh started to realize. We can't save ourselves here, but perhaps God will have mercy on us. Perhaps if we cry out earnestly to him and turn from our wickedness, perhaps God will be merciful. That was their only hope. And you know what? Of course, that's exactly what happens. Look at verse 10, how the, how the verse or the chapter ends. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them. 
and he did not do it. There are, uh, there are several places in the Bible, especially the Old Testament, where we see this kind of language of God relenting, turning, where he had, God had declared judgment that was to come, but when people repent, God uh, shows them mercy instead. He does not bring the judgment upon them that he said he would bring. Um, does that mean that God didn't really know what the Ninevites were going to do, that God was somehow surprised at the outcome here? Uh, God fully intended to punish them. He was ready to punish them, but then they changed, and so he changed his mind when they changed their attitude. Um, the short answer is no. Short answer, no. Uh, nothing surprises God. This is one of the key realities of his character and his nature. We say that God is omniscient, which means he knows all things. Before there's a word on my tongue, David said, God, you know it all. There's no surprises with God. Uh, in fact, we, we, we know this from chapter 1, and again, we'll see it in chapter 4, that God sent Jonah to Nineveh for this purpose, with this intention of bringing the people to repentance and showing them mercy. This is what God intended to do all along. That's why Jonah refused to go, if you remember, in the first place. He didn't want to see it happen. Um, so this is not a surprise to God. But we do see this, that our relationship with God is dynamic. When I say... We can't come to God without his intervention. The Spirit convicts us. God grants repentance. That doesn't mean that somehow we're spiritual robots, that God does all the work, and we, against our own will, we just have to follow suit. No, it's a dynamic relationship that, that God has to intervene for me to come to him, but I still have to consciously and sincerely come to him. That all of us have to daily make that choice to turn to God in repentance and faith. And when sinners truly repent, when sinners truly turn to God, God never denies them. When a person truly turns to God, grieving their sin and asking for mercy, God always grants mercy because that's who he is. He doesn't say, nice try, but I already said I was going to do it and I've got to keep my word. No, he changes in that sense, right? He does what he always intended to do, but he changes in the sense that he responds to their response. It's a dynamic relationship. Now, what does all this mean for us today? We're talking about repentance. Last week, we looked at Jonah's repentance that happened in the fish. Today, we look at the people of Nineveh, their repentance. We're spending two weeks on this because it's so vitally important for us. When we talk about repentance, we see in the Ninevites a wonderful pattern that when we are convicted of sin, what should we do? Throw up a prayer? Feel a little guilty? suppress what we've done or try harder to do better. No, when, we're, when we come face to face with our sins, it ought to wreck us and turn us to God. It ought to make us grieve because we've grieved the very heart of God in our sin, and I don't want to live this way. It ought to be a dramatic and radical response, right? But we have an advantage that the Ninevites did not have. There's something that you and I, as we sit here, there's a reality that we live in that they did not know. And it comes to us, in part, it comes to us from Matthew chapter 12. Again, you don't need to turn there, but we've, we've referenced Matthew 12 every week because Jesus connects himself to Jonah in Matthew 12. And it's really fascinating. Jesus, he's speaking to his fellow Jews, but he does not have kind words for them because these fellow Jews are rejecting Jesus. They refuse to believe in him and follow him. And Jesus is telling them the reality of their lostness and the consequence of their lostness. And he says something interesting in Matthew 12, Jesus looking at this generation of people, uh, his fellow countrymen, his, his fellow Jews who won't receive him, he says, 
the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and they will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus is saying something shocking to them. These people who say, we're, we're the people of God, we're the children of God, we're the children of Abraham. Jesus says, the pagan folks from Nineveh are going to stand in judgment over you one day. Because when the word of God came to them, they repented. Even though it came through a broken vessel, through the prophet Jonah, right? And then Jesus says, but something greater than Jonah is here. You know what he's saying to them? He's saying, listen, you're not just rejecting a threat of God's judgment. You, when you look at me and turn from me, you're rejecting the offer of God's grace. You're rejecting the Savior of the world. Something greater than Jonah is here. So as, whereas we see this in Jonah 3, Jonah comes with a proclamation of God's judgment, right? But when Jesus came to earth, Jesus came not to proclaim God's judgment over us. Jesus actually came to bear God's judgment for us. That was his entire purpose in coming into the world, not to come in and say, 40 more days and then you're toast. Or, you know, God's real mad and he's going to give you a little time to change, but then time's up. That's, that was not the message of Jesus. Jesus came not to proclaim judgment, to, but to bear the judgment of God for us. Whereas Jonah's message, Jonah's message was a clear message of condemnation. Jesus's message, Jesus's ministry was and is salvation. Salvation. Jesus said it about himself. He said, the son of man has not come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. This is why the apostle Paul in Romans chapter two says it is the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. Now that's a backward way of thinking right there. Because we might think, especially if we look at Jonah 3, it's the justice of God, the judgment of God, the condemnation that our sins deserve. That's what leads us to change. And certainly there's truth in that. But that's not the new covenant reality that we have in the coming of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul says, do not take lightly the kindness and tolerance and patience of God because it is his kindness that leads you to change. It's his kindness that leads you out of sin and to the Lord. Y'all, Christians, if you are a Christian, we are not meant to radically turn away from sin because somewhere God has got his finger on the button and that button says Kyle on it. And God is just waiting for me to mess up one too many times before he clicks that button and the floor drops out from underneath. Some of us maybe were raised under that impression that God is just furious with us all the time and he can't wait to put an end to me. That is not why we turn away from sin. We turn away from our sin because God in his kindness and in his mercy, he has put our sin to death through the grace of Jesus Christ. When we see the, the, the motivation for God in sending Jesus Christ, we see it in the Apostle Paul, we see it in uh, 1 John, we see it in the words of Jesus. It's so often, maybe always, connected in to the mercy and the kindness and the love of God, that he would send judgment upon his son so that that judgment might, might not come upon us, that we might be forgiven 
instead? What is it that ought to motivate us away from our sin? We certainly recognize that every sin deserves a just penalty. We recognize that God is righteous and we ought to reject all unrighteousness. Yes, but ultimately we turn from sin and we turn to Jesus. Because in Jesus, all the mercy of God has been poured out for us forever. If you are a Christian, it's not because you've cleaned up your act and felt really bad about what you did. That's not what makes us who we are. That is part of the process. That sense of guilt that drives us to him, right? But it doesn't drive us to an exacting God who makes sure that we cover all our bases. It draws us to a God who in his mercy has granted you the repentance that leads to life. And so my prayer for me and my prayer for us is that we would be a repenting people, a repentant people, that we would see in, in the conviction that the Spirit brings, we would see our sin for what it really is, and that we would take it very seriously. We talked about that a lot last week. But that we would also understand the point and purpose of God changing us God is not uh, primarily concerned with just making us better people. God is not primarily concerned with just making sure we act right and color within the lines of our lives. God's primary concern is bringing us to himself through the person of Jesus Christ and his bloodshed on the cross that we might know him and progressively we might become more and more like Jesus. And so when we repent, we're not just turning away from the bad stuff. We're turning instead to a Savior who loves us, who paid the price for the sin that we now turn away from. That is the outpouring of mercy that we've already received. So when we talk about what it means to be God's children, uh, Peter said it like this, As obedient children, no longer be conformed to the lusts which were yours in your ignorance. No longer live your life in sin, but like the Holy One who called you, you be holy also in all your behavior, right? The key right there is this, like the Holy One who called you, God brought conviction of sin into your heart. Perhaps he's doing it right now. God also graciously has brought you to repentance. That's a gift too. Our response is this, not teachers come and get back in your seat. Our response is, hallelujah, what a savior. Why would I, who have died to sin, want to live in it any longer in light of what I've been given in Christ? The greater Jonah is here. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, would you, would you do the work in my heart this morning that I so desperately need? Not to just feel bad and try to make up for it all the time. Not just, not just to feel bad and try to ignore it and maybe it'll, it'll go away. But Lord, when you bring conviction of sin to my heart, that I would respond um, urgently, radically, to grieve it and to turn away from it. Lord, would you do that great work in our hearts this morning? That we would take a page from Jonah 3 and see in these, the Ninevites... Um, wicked as they were, backward as they were, that when conviction came to their hearts, they responded. They stopped everything, and they turned to you. Lord, would that be our first, um, uh, the first place we go? Would that be our, our absolute, immediate response?
and turning to you in our sin, we pray, Lord, not what the Ninevites prayed. Perhaps God will be merciful. No, because you have already shown yourself merciful once and for all through the cross of Christ. We don't wonder if you'll forgive us. We have forgiveness in Christ. We know it. And I pray, Lord, that in light of that grace, we would be all the more motivated to reject sin and to turn to you, knowing, Lord, that, um, that we can approach your throne as your children, that we can turn to you, Lord, knowing what you've done for us, that we didn't earn any of it. We were simply granted it as a gift. Father, would you help us in this today? Uh, it's, it's, an, it's a fact that we are all sinners. It is a fact that right now where we sit, we are, we are taking you lightly. You are, you are holier than we think you are. You are more righteous than we think you are, than we esteem you to be. Um, you take sin way more seriously than we do. So seriously that you would be willing to send your son Jesus to put it to death. And so, Father, would you give us that kind of seriousness, that when we look into our own hearts, that we would turn to you full face for your forgiveness and for the holiness that only you can bring into our lives. Make us new and make us different, Father. Make us a repentant people. Thank you for the grace that we have to have this conversation. We're not wondering what the outcome will be. It has already been firmly established. Because the cross and the empty tomb have shown forth proof that you loved us even at our worst, and you will see us through, even, in through our, even through our failures. Thank you, Jesus. Make us new. Make us new. In your name. Amen. Amen.